Welcome to the Cannabis Data Science Meetup Group. You're in for one of the best treats ever today. This may be the best meetup to date. Can't thank you enough for attending to make this happen. We've been talking a lot about the top issues for cannabis cultivators. And one that's come up over and over again is this issue with hops latent thyroid. Well, these awesome scientists at MyFloraDNA, a biotech genomics lab in California, Dr. Angel Fernandez and Dr. Ajith Anand, want to share some of their latest research and they're open to field some of the questions we may have because you know we all come at this group from our different perspectives and so now this is an awesome opportunity for us to actually ask and hear from some of the leading scientists in the field to find out what is this issue with hopsley and thyroid all about so i'll let everybody have a chance to to chime in and ask questions here in a second but without further ado Dr. Fernandez or Dr. Anand, would you want to take it away and let us know about some of your research? Yes, uh, can you hear please? Yes, okay. So thank you very much for, for, for having us. Um, as you say, we are um, a molecular biology lab, a genomics lab, uh, located in Sacramento, uh, in California, uh, just in the middle of the most uh, affected uh, region in the world uh, for um, whole Latin viroid. Our main, our main goal is to <clears throat> Uh, to offer diagnostic services to farmers and, and growers. Uh, we develop a technology that allows us to analyze uh, several thousand of samples in a daily basis uh, with an accuracy of around 97, 98%. Uh, we are working actually, we can analyze those plants uh, in few hours. So that is very convenient because the clients, they can get the results basically in, in two days, right? The process takes longer actually when they ship the, the plants to our lab rather than the analysis itself. Uh, so for the past year, we have already analyzed around 275,000 uh, samples. Um, and we are continuously improving our protocol in order to uh, to lower the the price. We know that this is a very big issue in the industry. We know the economical difficulties uh, that our clients are suffering. So all the improvements that we are uh, making is basically to to lower the the price, uh, so that eventually will be translated in a in a larger volume of samples that they they, they can analyze. So whole Latin viroid is a viroid that actually is the equivalent 
uh, to what happened a few years ago uh, with COVID in humans. Uh, what we recommend to the clients is to test uh, in a regular basis. Uh, the plant today might be uh, healthy, but uh, tomorrow might be infected without showing any visual um, uh, symptom. However, the viroid might be present in the in their facilities, and it's very easy to spread to the other to the other plants. So that's why the the our our recommendation is to keep testing uh, at least two or three times uh, for the whole cycle of of the plant. This is phenomenal that you're undertaking this research and testing to, to help people out. I've got a myriad of questions, but before I you know start bombarding questions on you and and start fielding questions from the audience, Dr. Anand, would you want to maybe tell us a bit about your role and you know maybe what are some of the you know the challenges with testing you said you're doing north of 270,000 lab tests so that is a well of data right there so that's a thought that comes to mind so i'll be formalizing my thoughts but you're you're welcome to chime in dr anand and then and then maybe we can open it up to some questions Sure, thank you. Thank you all. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to see so many different people. I've never met uh, many of you, but I know you all are uh, one of the best people who are working on cannabis. I entered into the cannabis industry just a couple of years back, so I'm still learning a lot. For me, when I moved, to give you background, I'm a molecular biologist. I was one of the leading uh, technologists for the seed companies before I moved into cannabis. I was working for the second largest seed company, the US. Um, my background is in functional genomics, biotechnology, you name it, a lot of things that I've done with microbial engineering and so forth and so on. What fascinated me about cannabis, and you might ask me this question, hey, what, 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 what are you doing in this crop? Is that the fact that cannabis is growing, it's getting a lot of traction, and it's one of the fifth, sixth largest uh, crop now in the U.S. In the, from, when the, from the value perspective. So there is a lot more to be done. Uh, there's a lot of information that's uh, been exchanged between the community, but we also need a rigorous data-driven science-based approach to resolve some of the significant problems that we see. One of the challenges we discuss broadly and quite often is the HLVD. And to just give you about HLVD, HLVD is hop Latin viroid. So obviously, it's a hop viroid. And to tell you about viroid, viroid as like naked RNA molecule, one of the most, one of the smallest uh, infectious uh, molecule that primarily only infects plant. That's a good thing about it. And many aspects of the hop Latin viroid, I personally have learned in the last six to seven months. Uh, we are still trying to figure out. We are learning each and every step through the efforts that are put by other organizations like us from the academia. Uh, and so basically what we are doing is using those learning opportunities to actually support the community with solutions that actually create value for their crops. Obviously, everybody talks about economic losses, 
and economical losses are not just for cannabis. Uh, we have serious issues with drought and uh, in the Midwest today with all the row crops that you can talk about. So there are going to be both biotic and abiotic stresses. The biotic are the pathogens and other things, and abiotic are other stresses, which I think we will also have eventually getting into cannabis. But what I feel is we just are on the tip of the iceberg about when it comes to a crop like cannabis. And I personally want to use my know-how, building those uh, capacities in large organizations, bring those intellectual knowledge, bring, bring those uh, experiences to cannabis and drive um, to broaden the knowledge on cannabis and also drive uh, services and solutions that actually are attractive and effective to the growers, the breeders, and as well as the nurseries and cultivators. That's, that's what I'm here for. And so I'll talk about the little work we have done on HLVD. I wanted to give you about a little background on HLVD, right? HLVD is a very serious problem. And when you talk about serious problem, I'll just put some value. This is all in the, uh, I mean, it's well known in the uh, literature or it's been documented. One of the things is, is we think we, we believe that it's 90 to 95 percent of all the cannabis that we grow in California, which is the hard word we are sitting, is either infected or had been infected in the past. The cost associated with this worldwide, and it's not a problem in the US alone, it's a worldwide problem. Uh, when it comes to the number of strains, in, 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 in example that Angel gave about COVID, we have so many strains, and today a new strain is there, and we're getting a booster bill for that. But the lucky thing about this virus is the, num the quasi species or the different types of strains that are infective are limited to two, and they are very, very small changes. Okay? And as I said, this is small RNA. It's just like around 256 nucleotides. It's much smaller to what our whole you know, genome is, or even a plant genome. Just for a comparison, I'll say, like the viroid, if I you were to say it's a dot, then the viruses are a little uh, you know, pointer. Or, so it's like 22, it's almost 100 times larger than a viroid, a virus. And, as, and if you look at a, um, a spore, like um, a fungal spore, it's around 100x larger than a virus. So, so you can see with the naked eye or you use a microscope to see a spore, a fungal spore, whether it's aspergillus or it's fusarium, but you need like very sophisticated electron microscopy instruments to see a viroid, okay? So that's about the viroid. Now the effective loss, economical loss that is caused with the viroid is estimated to be 4 billion globally. So we're talking about a crop which is five to six billion in the US, and we're talking about four billion globally analyzed laws that can happen from um, a, a viroid like HLVD. And you feel like, oh, isn't it silly that li this little piece that cannot even survive by its own is able to now get into a plant, piggyback on the plant, use the host machinery and replicate and present the phenotype as a disease. And the disease, often people know in the community is dudding or duds, right? The dudding and duds uh, disease can be easily seen the, with the stunted growth, the, type, the flower quality, the brittleness of the plant. Sometimes there is yellowing or darkening of the leaf, but the most common time phenotype, which is very visually noticed is if the disease is expressed, the phenotype is seen, the plant will be stunted and dudded. And so we all know that if the plant is dead and, uh, and stunted and all much smaller, your 
yield that from that crop is going to be significantly reduced. Another interesting aspect of, about this HLVD is now it doesn't necessarily express every time. So we know in plants there is genotype dependency in the resistance or tolerance uh, to diseases. So many times the disease is not even expressed. So you will think about the plant as being growing normal and uh, we have a, a, a practice of using mother plants and making cuttings and rooting. So unknowingly, without knowing that the mother plant is infected, you're making cuttings and then you're basically disseminating. And then could there be an environmental uh, effect or could there be another issue with another pathogen that the plant starts expressing itself? And now you realize, oh my God, I have already lost a lot of my plants because now all these plants are infected. This is one of the most effective ways of disseminating the disease. Unawareness, unknowingly cutting and then putting it to spread. So I want all you folks to understand that that's, that's something that we have to proactively think about, especially in, the, in, in, our, in a cultivation or necessary practice where you're using other plants. I would recommend, my best recommendation or medication would be is be proactive in testing all the mother plants, making sure that you have done it through different growth stages, that you're not missing the opportunity to cull something that could have been done much early in the beginning. So latency is a good thing I talked about where you can't know the disease. The other interesting is um, the effect on the economical value comes from the flowers that you produce. So there is very clear documentation that plants which are infected may have up to 50% reduction or greater than that in their cannabinoid composition. So, and the flowers are actually a little more brittle. They're like, they don't, they're not compact. So if you run through a seed, you can see they uh, I mean, flow down. So I gave you a broad perspective. And again, I want to open up uh, with what my thoughts were here so that uh, we can have some good uh, interactive uh, session here. Phenomenal, Dr. Anand. I love it. I love your work. I kind of want to maybe break this down into three segments and then we can ask questions about those. But basically, I see this as, you know, where did, you know, the Hopsley environment originate? When the, how did it take root? Um, like quite literally, that's such a problem in the cannabis industry. And then two, I guess, focus on, you know, what does this actually look like? Um, and so you've already kind of spoken a bit about that. So, you know, what are the effects of Hopsley and Viroid? How can you potentially spot it, identify it? And then the final thing is the solutions, which I think is what your company's really working on is, is the testing. So I kind of wanted to, to, to pick your brain on this. Um, and, then, uh, and then maybe if anybody else has any questions about the, you know, the, the origins of you know, Hopsley and Viroid in the cannabis space. But I just was doing a brief poke at the, the research and it was, I'm just gonna put them in the chat here um, so people can look at them, but uh, just for official sources. But from what I was under reading, and so let me know if this is wrong, it was looking like Hopsley and Viroid was first detected in cannabis maybe around 2017 or early 2018. And 
the I was all, I was basically looking for like ground zero, and the earliest mention I could find was just a case that appeared to be in Oakland, in perhaps an indoor grow, and then they mentioned another case um, in 2018 in in Santa Barbara, and so kind of what comes to my mind is, you know. What are your best ideas or thoughts on, you know, how did Hopsley and Viroid take root in the cannabis industry? Like what maybe made some of the first growers susceptible? Did the fact that cannabis is kind of in a legal gray area, did that have any influence? Maybe people weren't following the best procedures or maybe it's got something to do with the strains or the cloning, but I don't know. So, so what are your thoughts? So, like, why did this? Uh, maybe the cannabis industry was just right for this, but you know, why this particular virus, and why do you think it uh, took off like it did? So that's my my sort of origin question. Oh well, uh, thanks for asking that question, and that's a million dollar question. I would say that we still are able to. We don't know. We have an answer for it. I would just give you the prehistorical thing. Um, the prehistorical thing that I want uh, people to remember is it is a half Latin viroid. So it was first determined, uh, identified in the 1985-87 time, something around that, in uh, hops in Spain. Okay, so northern Spain is where it was first. Now, how did it move? How did but, it uh, reach? Let me add, in Spain, about 30 years ago. So it's been around for more than 30 years, actually uh, almost 40 years. Yeah. So it was first identified and uh, published in 1987. Yeah. So it would have been there even before that. I'm saying that the fun thing is we have to go back and uh, rethink about who. It has been here for almost 40 years, even 50 years. I mean, uh, detections were like, I mean, again, again, this is a biological system, which is not like you can do any, uh, um, like in the uh, you've been indexing or something that pathologists do because the viroid cannot live and needs to have a host. So it had, it, it's probably there for a long time. The other beautiful thing about it is it's got a very narrow host. Narrow host where probably it expresses as a phenotype. It doesn't mean that we know that we today understand is it only those three hosts or is it? actually present in other uh, uh, plant species, but does not have a disease, right? It doesn't express the disease. <clears throat> so the mm, hosts are like a couple of different hop varieties. Uh, then there is this stinking needle. And now we have uh, uh, cannabis, obviously. Now, how did it move from Spain to California? Or it was already present in Europe. People went, went unnoticed. And it was just that we happened to start noticing a plant phenotype in the maybe the late 2017s. I know the first report was something around 2018, 2019, where two groups simultaneously came and reported it. But it, it must have, have been here. Somebody really paid attention and then tried to identify what's that app, right? Hemp and hop are close related if you look at that way too. Now, the one of the most likely, again, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a plant pathologist, so don't uh, take my word with like, you know, it's a grain of salt, let's say. It's likely it got cross-infected. 
and somehow the population moved here and that's why we say us has a very strong uh, quarantine when you bring seeds or plants anything when from foreign countries this is like exactly a great example of something that probably got in a ship got an airplane and reached here now that is my understanding but i again want to make sure that people understand i'm giving a hypothesis i don't have any uh, supporting you know data or something to prove that's the only possible way it reached it could have also come with seed because now as we have heard about even seed can transmit it and that's more of a latest knowledge so i would open it up for people to figure out what exactly happened but we know that we started seeing this disease in the cultivation uh, in the cultivation parts of california in the santa barbara area and eventually now all of california probably has it in the early 2017s and 18 I mean, 2018, uh, to be more precise. May I um, cut in for a sec? This is John Abrams. Um, so I became familiar with this in 2016 with oh, okay. a work in Humboldt. Um, the name associated with this was Rick Crumb. There was a report. Um, in fact, I think we presented in 2017 at MJ Biz on what this viroid was. We didn't know it was a viroid at that time. We were calling it PCIA, it's a putative cannabis infectious agent. Um, and then we were going to try and identify what it was molecularly. We left that to others. And um, the story is, as you said, the index strain as we remember in Humboldt in about this time was GG4 or Gorilla Glue. And so it was intriguing and of course humble <laughs> cultivation being what it is this is kind of how it spread so anyways uh i would call your attention to presentations at uh, the mj biz uh science symposium and i think it's 2017 but it reflects the story starting in 2016. thank you john uh, that's a good thing that um, you brought to me again as in the beginning, I said, I'm learning a lot of things about this. May I ask another more broad question um, regarding, you, you know, your, your discussion of its etiology coming out of northern Spain. And I guess that's a cannabis, a um, mm. not a hemp derivative, but a cannabis derivative, derivative report. My thinking is that this has been circulating a lot longer. Um, there were reports of hemp diebacks um, in the literature. Uh, what I particularly remember is at the time of the uh, Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956, there was um, a report, strangely, of hemp was a major cultivar, uh, cultivar in Hungary during that time and it took a beating same thing in serbia if i remember correctly so my major question is if this has been circulating for a lot longer i'm wondering if the current hemp strains uh you know there are a number of classic hemp cultivars may have some endogenous resistance that is worth understanding or looking at i 
okay john i will i i completely agree with you and when i when you mention about the uh, inherent genotype uh, specific resistance or genotype specific um, exclusion or not expressing the phenotype that's not only unique for this i think the whole world understands how wild germplasms and germplasms have helped to identify and breed for those resistance in other crops right so it may be a, a great opportunity for us to go and see if we can actually systematically do this study and identify the cultivars it's more or less say i don't like to say resistance or tolerance more or less uh, identify those in um, genetics or germplasm which are actually much more tolerant to this hlvd and then incorporate that into our breeding programs we can then mechanistically identify if there is a specific gene or specific qtl or a specific mechanism which could be an RNA silencing mechanism that allows that particular mm -hmm. plant to overcome the disease or doesn't allow the viroid to amplify or increase the titer that uh, results in a disease. Sorry, John. So what is clear is that more research is needed and also even to find out the origin. If, what, what we are saying is that what, the, what it has been documented is that in Spain in the 1987 was identified in hub. But I'm pretty sure I agree with you. Probably 30, 40 years even before that was already in Russia, in, in Serbia, in, in East European countries and even even in asia so for that i mean there is there are today we have molecular tools uh, that we can that we can use to identify the real origin and and the event to retrieve to know the exact date or gr or you know uh, approximative gr of the spread and origin of this but the problem that we are facing in cannabis all of us is that we are less than 20 organizations worldwide including public and private organizations doing research this is a very novel novel topic and when we compare uh, the research done cannabis versus the rest of the crops tomatoes soybean almonds mm -hmm. uh, whatever for similar uh, pathogens or any other trade uh, obviously they are 50 years ahead of us mm -hmm. in research so what Aji was mentioning about the germoplasm wild species wild ecotypes that is extremely important to 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 analyze those those genetics and and trying to breed them or incorporate the the, the genes into the domesticated or the or the standard cannabis that, that we are using today and i, I just wanted to add to in just to uh, comment is that the fact that we haven't got as much excitement for cannabis across the public institutions so because of the current regulatory regimes it hasn't really attracted 
our universities to do a simple fundamental basic research that happens with most of the other crops. And lack of that has also uh, limited our expansion in the industry as well, because now industries are working with limited amount of funds. And obviously we have to do things that we can educate the community also, but at the same time provide a way of generating revenue to, for the organization to survive. So we can use many of the other crop models, as I was saying, the amount of work that I was doing in the raw crops to sort of streamline the science-based research on cannabis, but we take a village to do it together. Yes. It may not be single institutions that can be able to achieve those things. But understanding the uh, how this virus uh, originated, how it spread, I think, again, going back to those wild germplasm, if they are still maintained, somebody has seed, we may be able to really go back and figure out because of the modern genomic tools. And this is a small viroid, like 256 nucleotides. Like we can do a million of those uh, uh, seeds being sequenced for this just in a day. That's the power we have today, the tools we have today. I may just chime in with a thought because that snippet of information that um that john said oh that this may have been uh, prevalent in gorilla glue that may kind of tie a lot together and uh, picking back on some of uh, your work over at my florida dna because what i'm thinking now especially since you're saying that this virus may have been around for 40 plus years is there's sort of a fun article that um, that came out recently that were saying that they're finding these, you know, ancient viruses that are getting de um, thawed out in the permafrost. And so what comes to my mind is probably these viruses in hemp have kind of been co-evolving just for, you know, for probably a long time. Ooh. I'll, let me finish this and then I'll let you chime in, Dr. Inane. And then so for whatever reason, probably because cannabis has been pretty underground in the United States, the, uh, my guess is cultivators have had to rely a lot on clones. And then we've discussed in the past, somebody discovered this one variety, Gorilla Glue, and for a number of reasons, it's just become insanely popular. We were seeing that it's by and far the top selling strain in Washington state. And then that's not even including all the different varieties it's been mixed with. So it could just be that this one variety was selected. Unfortunately, that one variety was super susceptible to the virus. And then it's just been cloned and spread and then this kind of piggybacks on a, the question in the comments is, you know, are clones really being tested? Um, so so that, those are more thoughts um, rather than questions. But but I think maybe you had some, something to chime in with, Dr. Nick. Yeah, I wanted to go back to what you said. You know, it may have been, but the answer is it is being there over 40 years because we know the earliest documentation is 1987. So we're just short of 40 years today. 
And when a disease is discovered, it's only when somebody really notice and pays emphasis and you know wants to know exactly what's going. So, which tells you it could have been there even earlier than that. It's only the diagnostics and our capability of being able to identify this came with the sophistication of instruments that we had by then, right? So you can think about looking for a 256 nucleotide viroid. I'm thinking about my 1987. I'm still in school, probably. I was doing much more uh, laborious way of detecting a DNA when I came to school in the 1990s. Uh, but our detection capabilities may not have been that. So again, we might have used classical um, uh, processes <laughs> for identifying these diseases at that point, you know, by cross-infecting and there are there are ways that people do that. So the second comment of whether the viroid has been um, sort of uh, uh, emerging, the, the point I've mentioned is even though the viroid has been now collected 50 or 60 different uh, strains have been uh, identified, the thing is they all seem to have, uh, have are very stable. We are not seeing very quasi species of RNA, which is there in other viroids uh, that also has uh, infecting plants. And PSL TV is one of the PSLTVs is one of the most uh, extensively studied. The, that's a good news. The good news is most of the viroids that are infecting are still belonging to the two class that I said, CAN1 and CAN2. Uh, and they are infecting. Uh, whether they're infective, uh, they are present in. Uh, in the US, are they also present globally? And the third question or comment that was about clones, I think that is imperative. That is what I think is an important thing. Testing where you get the clones, who provides the clone, I think is the best step. So I would say that, you know, um, uh, to be able to do that early enough is the best mode of preventing the disease proactively testing clones before they are grown at multiple stages. Like even when you get a clone, don't just uh, wait for the first few leaves and test it because our study tells it pretty clearly that if you wait a little longer, you do it every weekly or bi-weekly, even if the viroid is at low titers, they're going to increase over a period of a couple of weeks and which would have been not detected, now would have identified as an infected plant. So, Having that something what I call as yeah, having That's something called as as an SOP uh, of pest management practices, a cultivation management practices will help us avoid the viral load. And again, Angel, please go ahead. Yes, yeah, so no, because I read a, a question in the chat asking if the uh, all the clones sold in California are being tested for first for HRV. Well. So this is one of our recommendations that uh, even a grower buys from tissue culture labs uh, uh, the clones, and even if those tissue culture they have tested, they have done the test, the testing for HLB. Uh, at that early stage, they might be negative, but then two, two, three weeks later, the viral load can increase, right, and become positive, the plant. So our recommendation to the growers is just randomly uh, select a few plants, 
to make sure that everything is clean and the uh, infection level is zero percent. I mean, based on the statistics and based on the numbers of plants that they they, they will get from the from the tissue culture uh, or their nurseries. This and to make an analogy of that is again, I go back to the COVID era where we all have tested on weekly, monthly basis to make sure that the population, uh, the, the amount of infection that we have in the population is reduced. So I think this is exactly, Angel, what you see is that you have to have a routine testing plan and uh, we are here to help it. We have solutions that we want to provide on site so that you are capable of making all those decisions than necessarily as supporting you. So this is similar to a problem in straight out mammalian cell biotechnology that has been uh, solved, I would say years ago, when you're propagating uh, transfected or recombinant mammalian cells for blockbuster biologic drugs worldwide, you have to make sure that your endogenous retroviruses and all that are not brought forward into your culture systems. So it is very standard to create master cell banks and working cell banks that go through elaborate characterization to make sure it's clean and free of infectious agents and virus. This is standard practice in the biotechnology industry. And there are organizations that are very good at running these tests. My view is we have to do the same thing in cannabis if we want to go forward with this. And it comes to the major question of creating master cell banks of, I've always been a fan of protoplasts to do this. Uh, the technology is not there yet, but <clears throat> you would have a well-characterized protoplast master cell bank and then you would come out of that and use best practices to keep this down. Um, the paradigm is in biotech, in mammalian uh, scale up cell culture biotech. I think we have to do the same thing here. John, I totally agree with your comment and thanks for putting it. I think this is what we normally say seed banks in yep, but when it comes to um plant germplasm and we have uh, seed banks like the uc davis has seed banks for hemp um there is a seed bank for hemp in and uh, i think uni washington uh, university cornell. of washington yeah in cornell i met also another gentleman in one of the conferences that uh, they have also started going and collecting seeds from different places yeah you're right, John. Uh, if we could but I think it a... has to be beyond seeds. I think you actually have to go to uh, tissue culture-based cell banking in this case, because I think it's difficult. You can't, how do you screen seeds uh, effectively? It's a destructive analysis. You can't, um, once you've uh, taken a seed and tried to analyze it for viroid presence, um, it's not a seed anymore. True. What I'm saying is getting the quality seeds and then maintaining it, right? You can germinate the seeds mm -hmm. and then test it and then also, as well as get more seeds. Obviously, we're not talking about 50 seeds being saved. That's one viable. Now, the reason I think that's a viable process because it's been already known and documented for other crops. Protoplast, on the other hand, is very difficult in, in crops. Uh, regenerating right. plants from protoplast is not easy. 
and right. with product pardon yeah no i yeah. agree but i think that's if i were to push where the tech needs to go i think that needs better development yeah and the other thing about protoplas is also when you do long-term cultures with protoplas you also can introduce variation so one has to so there is another way of looking look at it is is taking these shoots or the nodal tips that called um, is to make a synthetic seeds or doing cryopreservation which has again been done with uh, plant germ blossoms mm -hmm. so there are multitudes of approach i mean i just wanted to learn but again as i told you there are, there needs to be an institutional uh, commitment to do these things to support i mean a private institution cannot do it a thought that comes to my mind and it wouldn't i wouldn't be doing justice if i didn't ask it is so i always studied so i've studied economics and so what always comes to my mind is cost and so that's kind of what keeps coming back to mind is, uh, you know, you say, oh, you know, test every clone and test them frequently. And so that that seems like that may be a high cost. And then what John's describing with the with the tissue culture, if I'm getting that right. So that sounds even more costly. And I think that may be a problem, right, is a lot of the growers are, as far as agriculture goes, they're small scale farmers right these are as far as that right there's some really large agricultural plots out there so these are kind of small small scale agriculture and so you know maybe people are just they're maybe be hoping their plants don't have the virus because right um it appears that you find out pretty late um the effects if you don't test for it so maybe everything looks like it's going along well and then their flowers, like you said, they get dudded. And then, you know, they're maybe just trying to salvage it at that point. So I guess my question is, you know, if somebody's trying to be super cost effective, you know, is it worth waiting a little while into the vegetative stage to test because maybe the, the virus is spread a bit more or are you running a risk of spreading it to your other plants? at that point um like what what are your thoughts for for somebody who i mean just imagine a really small scale cultivator who's really trying to be budget conscious you know would you still recommend they test and then you know at what stage i think um and then every and then another idea is every clone or could you potentially you know get away with doing like a random sample of clones if that's a, a worthwhile question there are, there are several options and obviously depending the size of the cultivator the budget um, one strategy that they can do is they can pull uh, one leaf from several plants all together in one tube and then we do the analysis for that pool uh, that is a way to save money uh, the only problem is that if one plant or the pool becomes positive, you will have to go back and analyze individually which plan is the mm -hmm. is the is the positive one. I mean, uh, in a 
in an ideal scenario, obviously, is to test every single plan. But the reality is that no one, even large corporations, they can do that, right? So frequency is very important. I think my personal recommendation as a scientist is even for those growers with very limited budget is to test less plants, but more frequently rather than waiting 10 12 weeks and at the end decide to analyze 20 plants or 50 plants because the infection level might be high the spread the disease can be already spread so it's better to analyze less plants but at a earlier stage and the pooling and the pooling strategy is not is neither a, a, a bad idea what what do you think, Ajit? I mean, I, I agree with you, Angel. Like, you know, um, it is not possible for a small scale grower to do every plant. So in our study, at least we are showing that we can do it early, uh, as early as like five, six weeks. This is five weeks, six weeks after cuttings from a mother plant, which which basically if you take three weeks for rooting and you're talking about you know, one or two weeks before the leaves are emerging that you're actually testing it and you can test that. So whatever best fits for a small grower is what I think our recommendation is, whether it's pooling, three-dimensional pooling, or making rows and columns and randomly, random block design is what the other way. But do frequently check because the this culprit is going to be latent. This, this guy will not, I, I don't want to be gender biased, but this is not going to express. And sometimes uh, we are cheated by the virus. Uh, it's so be proactive in preventing it out of your control. And the only way to do is to know if you by chance have a plant which is infected. Because then all other things that the way it's spreading in the facility is all through your mechanical cutting, your tools, the sap. You know, it seems like what I've heard from one of the strongest pathologists is uh, well known. Even rubbing this wire art on the leaf doesn't allow it to. In fact, so it's mostly coming from the sap, wherever you're going, or it's spreading through water because roots are growing. So again, Angel is correct, you know, be proactive and find out what best fits your budget and is your best solution. Can I ask, um, given that you've done very large scale testing, does your database include any information about the plant samples coming in as like strain names or anything like that beyond that? Um, the reason I'm asking this question is I'm wondering if you were to look globally at your large data sets now, um, are there potential hints in the data for strain names that are underrepresented and can be uh, somewhat defined, therefore, as having some degree of resistance. I realize there's all sorts of confounding issues in bringing that forward. But as a start, do you record from your sample submitters the name of the strain? So let me take this one, Ajit. Um, so we don't have a, a database for, for, for HLB. What we developed last year is MyFlora Cloud, okay? And this is a platform where the clients, uh, they, they get access to all the data. 
their, their data, all the statistics and, <laughs> and so on. Obviously, we cannot to share that information publicly because that belongs to, to the clients and we don't even know the, the name of the, of the strain. Some clients, they, they, they want for their own record, for their own record and for their own statistics, they want to, um, to add the name of the cultivars so like that they can check or they can, they can, they can retrieve the, the, the information month by month based on cultivar or year by year or whatever information they want to add. But there are many other clients that they just number the, the plants. So if they send us 500 plants, they number one to 500 and we don't know that information. But again, this is not a, a this is a platform like uh, <laughs> AT&T or T-Mobile that you as a, as a, as a user you get in and then you can check the the bill from last month uh, how much energy you have uh, spent uh, but it's, it's it's not available for the for the public in general what about the concept of incentivizing your submitters to provide more information um to help understand whether there are more resistant strains we believe there are um, we also believe that there may be epigenetic stress factors that drive towards this, and we may be in a position to determine at a cultivation level if you're running stress cultivation or whatever. Um, interestingly, anecdotally, we were on a call last week with some Mendocino area growers, and there's the topic came up that is this prevalent in higher mercine strains, which would fit with our models of uh, mercine grossomoto being a stress factor indicator in cannabis? So I would encourage you, maybe there's, you dropped your rates or something like that if the submitter provides more information and you start to build your data set that way. So what I would, do instead is probably to create like a consortium uh, including association of growers from different locations different mm -hmm. states uh, where everybody submit few samples and my flora dna will take the responsibility of doing the genetic analysis uh, for free uh, and then what we can do is to write a scientific article, a scientific manuscript, and make it available, make it available for the for the co community uh, as a whole. Uh, but we wouldn't be able to use our clients' uh, data and make them public or make a, a, a scientific analysis. So basically, we are super happy to do this kind of uh, uh, analysis, uh, but would be from scratch, where <laughs> we sit down, we set the foundation of the analysis, goal, uh, what information we want to get from there, what information the community really needs, and my flora DNA would take the leadership and would do the, the, the genetic analysis again for for that consortium uh, free of charge and then with the condition of making the data uh, public. 
we are a group of scientists. We all uh, uh, are, we are coming from uh, academic institutions. Mm -hmm. This is the first time that uh, we decided, we have decided to to put all of our knowledge in a, in a private company. So our mind is, 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 is very um, academic uh, oriented. And that's why we published this, this, this recent publication, which is the largest analysis done so far for HLE, because we want to show to the public uh, the technologies and, and, and get data from there. We should then talk further because um, with the connections that we're developing in uh, Mendocino Cannabis Alliance as one and the Humboldt County Growers Association, which represents a lot of farms, those would be two key uh, stakeholders, if you will, in they're certainly all aware of this. And so we should talk further about how to move this along. We are happy to do that. Cool. I I thought it was a good idea because right we're the, the the data science meetup after all and so it was kind of in line with a, a thought I had that you know maybe maybe you may ask uh, people if they want to, to opt in that's kind of in line with John's comment in that you've got this sort of gold mine here and if you just sort of ask people so, for various data points, there's sort of who knows what you may find, right? Um, you know, what, how many weeks of vegetation was this plant in, what strain, if they're willing to share their location, so on and so forth. But um, a couple of people, I think, had wanted to ask questions, and I apologize to them for not getting around to it. But um, Candace, Larissa, Blue, or anybody, you're welcome to chime in now with any questions you may have. Um, so my apologies, I didn't get to everybody's questions. Um, but uh, I, I was thinking that the conversation was going well since we finally got to sort of the, the data side. But we, we are happy to come in back another time. Eh? Uh, I know this is a very hot topic and, and it takes time. So we will be happy to come back uh, next week or in a few weeks and, and, and resume the, the conversation if we don't have enough time today. It's okay. Well, I'll, I'll reach out to, to everyone who attended and see if they do have any questions that they may want to ask you in a, in a future week. But, but real quick, welcome to the group, Trevor. We're, we're just sort of wrapping up our talks on Hopsley and Viroid. If you have any questions, um, now's the perfect time. Um, but you see no questions. I just kind of wanted to pop in um, and just kind of get a feel for the space. I can say this is my first time in the space. Yeah, I came a little late. I had a work meeting, but well, we can kind of move to the to the third part, which is basically okay. We've discussed the origins of Hopsley and Viroid. Now we've discussed, you know, what it looks like in the industry, and now we've been brainstorming solutions. So I guess I'll let Dr. Fernandez and Dr. Anand, I'll let you two have the sort of the final words here. But, you know, what do you see as a future for cannabis cultivators? And, you know, how can they, you know, overcome this 
obstacle to keep delivering top-notch cannabis flower to people. So, so what are your what are your thoughts? Let me jump in, Angel, if you don't mind. I think, um, as we were saying, our first and foremost recommendation: know the plant you have. And when I say that, know what the uh, material is and there is where again some of our technologies will come which means you know we have dna fingerprinting which can be another conversation that we can use what is the genetics that you have in your grow area whether the plant is infected or non-infected what is the source of the material uh, that information is very important to both the grower and as a scientific community for us so that we can look at the progression of that we like this idea of a consortium where the consortium of growers, cultivators, and the nursery can come together and use our sophisticated tools, uh, which allow us to be able to un understand what's the issue, what the constraints are, and can we recommend some germplasm or genetics that is superior. That's a learning that is going to mutually help each other. Uh, I recommend also to work with us on some of the tools that we have developed, which is very high throughput, very reliable, very sensitive, and as well as affordable. You can do that either by sending it to us, or we can provide you also possibly on-site solutions. But diagnosis is the best way to prevent the disease. So do that proactively. Now, the whole suite of things that opens up with this is when we have more a systemized, systemic streamlined study that goes on with cannabis, we're going to unravel many things, including what John was saying. Maybe there are genotypes which are or varieties which are resistance. And then looking for using that for resistant breeding. There needs to be more of understanding how this viroid presents in itself. So what our, our team can do is only do the diagnostic, but we need the phenotypic data as well from the other end right uh, we have done experiments we, uh, we have done uh, huge scale testing with people or our growers where they have had 30 40 percent of being in, of infection down to like three to five percent infection today which basically says that and you know, historically that tells you that if you have a good practice of managing this disease you will figure out how to con control the disease in your growing and there is a lot more scope to understand if there is a host mechanism, is a gene-to-gene -gene interaction, is a disease-resistant pathway, but this will take a lot more dedicated work, and we need public institutions to jump into it. We, as a private organization, do not have a grow facility. We all that we can do is, yeah, we can support some tissue culture work. We can get rid of some of the viroid or viruses, but that's a limitation of what we can do. Uh, Inja, please jump in if you have any other thoughts. Um, yes, my, my main recommendation is um, obviously encourage growers to, to test uh, before getting a surprise. Uh, and there are, we start seeing many reports uh, stating that the quality of uh, cannabidiol concentration and so on is 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 significantly um, decreasing. Um, 
it's true that uh, we have had many clients that started with levels even above 50 percent and right now are around five percent six percent of uh, the overall uh, infection level are their facilities and that extends to to the testing it's there is not a secret uh, for that we understand that small growers they might have a very limited uh, budget but there are always solutions by for example by pulling by pulling plants five seven plants uh, in one tube so that is you know uh, you can get information for a very small amount of dollars uh, and we will be glad to create a consortium and, and help the industry moving forward with this um, problem that is affecting actually the, the whole community. Well, thank you for your work. I would just like to, to end with this in that we always come across these big problems, these big issues, but there's always a little ray of light. And the one here is the virus itself is for now, it looks like it's remaining pretty constant. So that's good. And so I have a lot of faith in all of the brilliant innovators and entrepreneurs out there. And that's what's kind of so cool about this is that, you know, one person's problem is an, an opportunity for an entrepreneur. So for example, my flora DNA. So we've got cultivators with 50% detection rates. And if you can lower your 50% detection rate to 5%, all of a sudden that unmanageable problem can now be managed. And as I was saying, you know, in the hemp fields, you know, you may never fully eradicate it, right? There was um, curly, um, curly top virus. And there was just a small percentage of plants that get affected by it. But on overall, the hemp field can power through. So if you can get your cultivation down to maybe a 5% detection rate, then hopefully you can kind of power through that and overcome. So we'd just like to say as always, you know, the future is bright. And a big thank you to Dr. Fernandez and Dr. Anand at My Flora DNA for coming and teaching us a thing or two about Hopslate and Viroid and giving us a, a little bit of hope for the future. So thank you both. Sure, thank you very much for having us and feel free to uh, contact us anytime with questions so all the audience can, uh, can get answered to, to that. Yeah, thank you I, from my end too. Thank you for taking the time, making the time for us to come and present. And I want to thank the community. What we are doing is because of the, the community participation and we are here today because we are able to learn and also at the same time provide solutions. So thank you. Thank you very Phenomenal. much for your presentation. Very, very interesting. Good morning. And, and thank you all to all the members of the Cannabis Data Science Meetup. This meetup wouldn't happen without all of you fine folks, all of your brilliant ideas, your thoughts, your ideas, your questions. You're the people making this happen at the end of the day. So thank you. Thank you for making the meetup happen. Hopefully we can move the cannabis space forward at least by a molecule or today at least by a virus so slowly but surely i think we're making progress so thank you all